What is up, everyone, and welcome to episode 390 of Combos Court. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't already, punch down on that subscribe button. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out the Combos Court Patreon page. I'll leave a link in the description for that. Appreciate everyone who tunes into Combos Court across the globe. Today's show, the lead sports performance specialist at P3 Applied Sports Science. John Flake joins in to talk athletic development and more. Just a fantastic conversation with John. You can find John on Instagram at John Flake. That's J-O-N-F-L-A-K-E. And go follow P3 Sports Science on IG if you haven't already. You know you can find me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. John Flake of P3, welcome to Combos Court, man. How are you feeling today? I'm doing well, man. How about yourself? Doing well, doing well. Um, tell me what makes P3 a little bit different than other athletic performance facilities, and what's your day-to-day like? So, I mean, I think the one thing that makes P3 different is that we take a more individualized approach to training athletes. Uh, we don't see it as just a basketball player or a football player or a soccer player. You know, we see it as an individual athlete within that sport. So each athlete that comes through our building gets a, their own individual assessment. And then a program is built around that assessment and the needs we see from that assessment. So there's no one or two programs that look exactly the same. They're all look a little bit different based on the individual. Day to day for me is generally anywhere from four to six hours of coaching athletes on the floor. And then a couple of hours of programming and looking at kind of assessments from our corner and tying that back into how we design programs and then here and there emails and stuff like that. But most of most of my time is spent actively coaching athletes on the floor, getting getting athletes better. So how much are you involved with the testing of NBA draft athletes? Uh, is It depends on staffing and stuff that we're doing. But, you know, the last not this last year, but the last two NBA combines, I've been involved in helping test at that with our assessment. And then depending on if we have staff, we have a whole kind of team in our, in our company. That's like our biomechanics team that generally will do all of the assessment stuff. We're capable where each of us are capable of running someone through the assessment, but generally we try to leave it to them so that we can focus on the coaching, but it's anywhere from a lot to a little. How, how has testing changed for NBA draft prospects over the years? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, I, I think that, I don't know if it's necessarily changed a huge amount in the last five to 10 years, but I think that what people value is maybe evolving in that sense. Mm. You know, thing, things like the approach verter is something that everybody loves to see, right? That's something that every kind of team will value is the balance that a player has, <laughs> right. but, but uh, things like the actual like counter movement jump, like instead of just the max for starting to put people starting to put a little bit more value on that because it's a better indicator of explosiveness and first step. Uh, you know, and I think things like the the lane agility and stuff like that are getting a lot more 
uh, interest than maybe they used to. So obviously the bench press has died a slow death and it, they don't do it at the combine anymore. So there's young know, people have, that at least has evolved to the point where they realize that it doesn't matter. I think that COVID was a good excuse to not do it anymore. And then it just never came back. Um, I, I feel like ever since uh, Kevin Durant came into the league, it was a good excuse not to do it anymore, right? Yeah, like he, he couldn't sure. he couldn't get it up once, maybe. I think that's what he it was. was. The, he it was zero, and he was the first he was the first nail in the coffin of many. And then I think it's fully you know six feet under now. Yeah. So to me, one of the most underrated facets of athleticism, you can correct me if you feel differently, is deceleration. I talked about this a lot, where a lot of the league's best players have it: James Harden, Kyrie Irving. Luca, I know you guys tested Anthony Edwards, um, and he rated at the top of acceleration and deceleration. My question to you is not really on the testing side, but how does one improve deceleration? I think it's multifactorial, right? So you know, I think it's one of those things that there's a common uh, misconception out there that force is absorbed. And it's really created, right? To stop yourself is not absorbing force. It's creating enough force yourself to stop your momentum moving forward. So ultimately it comes down to a force reduction capability, right? So it's it's the ability to have strength in that eccentric phase, right? I think it's kind of the big thing. We see a lot of these guys that are, are able to like actually create force in these kind of like single leg, these unilateral and bilateral settings that are actually fairly strong. You might not see guys like, squatting the house but i promise you if they put a bar on their back they could lower a lot of weight they might not be able to push it back up but they could definitely lower wow. a lot of weight um but ultimately it's a skill right it's it's understanding a huge amount of deceleration and understanding your ability to accelerate right so most people are not going to accelerate more than they can decelerate they understand okay if i'm moving this fast then i can't stop but they know if james is accelerating he knows okay if i move at this speed I know for sure I can stop on a dime at any given moment. So it's about the interplay between acceleration and deceleration, which is what makes Anthony Edwards so unique in a lot of ways is that he's elite at both, right? The, the ability to have explosive, be super, super explosive on one end and super, super explosive on the other end is pretty uncommon. But it's a combination of rhythm, timing, and then some level of strength to kind of be able to actually create enough force to stop yourself. When you see guys that are very high level at both acceleration and deceleration does that usually lend its hand for a player to be very controlled on the court when you're actually watching them play i mean i don't know if you can draw a straight line to it you know mm. like i think i okay. think the ability the ability to do something doesn't necessarily mean you have full command of it i mean i would think that someone like james definitely has full command of it right his his entire game is kind of built around that that component and, and different ways to work off of that component that I think you see a lot of younger athletes that have really elite force production capabilities, whether it's stopping or exploding and, and taking off on that acceleration, but they haven't really figured out exactly how to utilize it at, to the best of its ability. I, I think guys like Luca and James both have figured out how to use that to the best of their ability. Um, but ultimately if you have that elite acceleration, I mean, that that's going to, you're not going to really rely on as much on the deceleration. If your acceleration is elite, you know, you're not going to need to stop if no one's in front of you anymore. Right. So I look at some of the league's best athletes that tested really well at your facility. And it seems like to me, a lot of them get their shot off effortlessly. Right. So to you, and I think like skill and athleticism obviously blend together, but when we're looking at getting a player to be able to get a shot off more effortlessly, is it more mechanics or is it more athleticism 
in your opinion? Because like I could look at Josh Giddy and there's some things that you could change in terms of his mechanics, right? But right. then you look at some of the league's best, like guys who get it off effortless, effortlessly, like Jalen Green, Zach Levine, uh, Anthony Edwards. How much of getting your shot off comes down to athleticism, in your opinion? It's a good question. I mean, because it's like I, I've seen, I've seen both ends of the spectrum, right? I've seen someone who, like Kyle Korver, for a long time trained with us, and it's like he's not by any measure right. know, like the best athlete in the league, but he's going to get his shot off efficiently and really fluidly. Right. And like he right, can do right. it in many, in many, many different settings. So it's, I think, they, but, but, but not as well off the no, hand, no. not as well off yeah, the no handle of those guys, you know? Yeah. No, no chance. And like in no terms chance. of like shifting this separation, getting it off quickly. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I think, I think it does take some level of athleticism. If you're talking about creating your own shot, you know, I think it's, it's, you think of someone like Steph who's able to kind of like from anywhere yeah. to kind of get into rhythm and with whatever one move. <laughs> And I think it's I think it's really that combination of both skill at skill acquisition and athleticism. It's one of those things where it's like if you don't possess the ability to kind of push into that step back back position and be like balanced, then no matter how good your mechanics are, you're just going to be un, unable to really get a good shot off. So I think it's it's the repeatability within different scenarios, the ability to like regardless of where my body is in space, I'm going to organize it and get it balanced and put up a shot. So yeah. I think that's kind of one of those pieces of athleticism that, you know, that as a, as an industry, we don't quantify well is that kind of just pure ability to balance your body and, and understand your body in space. And sometimes we see guys that we have that are really, really good movers. Like Trey Jones is like a good example or someone like, um, what's another good example. Trey's like a good example of just like people that are really, really balanced in different scenarios and able to get Have you ever seen, uh, have you ever seen Cam Thomas play from the Nets? Like he not really no. He goes real quick and then shoots right up. Like and yeah. then he's like a great scorer. Hasn't got the biggest opportunity yet. But you're speaking about guys like that. Like they could get into their shiftiness right into their jump shot smoothly, yeah. right? I mean, I think it takes some level of like I said, like that that deceleration, that forced production capability, and then also like the combination of balance and skill acquisition. So it's it's a tough one to quantify in that sense. Right. Okay. So we talked about already some of the best leapers in the league when it comes to Anthony Edwards, Zach Levine. Um, we talked about the nerdy stuff, deceleration, but let's talk about what everybody wants to talk about. What's cutting edge when it comes to getting athletes to become better leapers? I mean, cutting edge is an interesting way to look at it, right? Is I think that maybe in a lot of ways that basketball as a whole hasn't really tapped out on the ability, like these things that, that have been around a long time in, in sports like track and field in terms of their ability to increase your explosiveness and your vertical jump. And the basketball hasn't maybe tapped out every avenue on that one like i would say that i don't know that, that it needs a new frontier because they haven't maximized hmm. the old frontier yet you know uh, I mean? okay okay so it's kind of one of those things where it's like that you don't see right weight training as a whole in basketball is is definitely more prevalent than it used to be but it certainly isn't the norm everywhere you go especially in youth sports right like i see a lot of guys when i go to like usa basketball who hardly ever touched a weight in their entire life guys like scotty barnes that you know He's 16, 17, an absolute freak in a unit, but has never touched, touched a weight. Not to say that he necessarily lacks explosiveness, but there's, there's a lack of training at younger ages in that sense. And like the kind of, I, I don't know that there's like the universal buy-in to like training from that, from the classical strands. And I don't necessarily believe that, that basketball players need to train like track and field athletes, but I think that there's a lot of kind of combination of strength and plyometric work that doesn't get implemented very well that has uh -oh. been shown to increase 
power output and stuff like that. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It can be, it can be a organization not empowering their strength coaches to really push the needle in that sense. It can be, you know, the player dynamic is very different in professional versus college. Right. So, you know, if you're, if you're working for the Lakers and you want LeBron to do something, it's going to be on LeBron's terms because that's just how the world rolls, you know, at that level. And it's so like a lot of guys are able to do really good development with younger players because they're, they're trying to earn a spot. They're trying to do everything they can. Whereas like, as you get older, I don't know that there's always that buy-in or that kind of like continued thought that, yeah, I need to continue lifting and continue to do this. Like Kyle was great at that. It was like, look, I'm, I've maxed out the balance. I've maxed out all the things I'm going to get, but <laughs> I'm going to, I've like, I'm going to, I'm going to keep on this because I want to keep doing this at whatever, whatever I have now, I want to keep it as long as I possibly can. So, yeah, I think that, I think that there needs to be a little bit more development from the younger age, because a lot of times I see guys, which is a weird phenomenon is that guys are much more bouncy in high school than they are in the NBA. Right? I was just, I was just about to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's a weird thing where you see guys that are 17, 18 is when they jump the highest and they get to 25, 26 in the league and they're losing some of that bounce. And some of that is just pure mileage, right? That like, it's the college. It's, it's, it's the college season that does it to a lot of them because a lot of them are bouncier sure. going into college, and then they're doing like, I, I feel like you you could correct me if you think I'm wrong that they're probably developing a lot of slow twitch muscle fibers in the sense that we're running long distances, we're doing all kinds of things that aren't lending his hand to explosiveness. Yeah, that's kind of what I mean in a lot of ways. Is like some of like these like classical basketball training models are kind of like archaic, right? Of like. 100%. Go, I mean, even what was that new movie with Adam Sandler, right? That like, uh, they just came out. Hustle, where it's hustle, like, you know, hustle, yeah. hustle, which is, it's not a bad film, but like, you know, you see him like running hill sprints every morning. It's like, that's not going to be the thing that like gets you, gets you more explosive. Sure. Well, if your cardio is a problem, but like. Well, I would say short distance hill sprints could get you explosive. <laughs> not those long ones though. Yeah, as long as it's not a quarter mile. You know? <laughs> right, right. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like, I think that there's a lot of that concept even within you see a lot of input from basketball coaches and what they want their strength coaches to do. And like, I get it. Like it's your program and, and you know, you, you want to have some say, but also like they're the professional at understanding physical development. So it's like, we need to do focus a little bit more on like certain things, but like let's focus more on power and anaerobic endurance than just going for hill sprints and longer runs. Right. I think, so there's, and high school basketball is like just run, 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 and do some bench press. You know what I mean? So I think, there's there's a lack of of maximizing kind of classical tenets of development there that could be done a lot better. And then you know if we're talking getting older, you know, then you can start to really refine. Okay, we we have really good training base here. We have really good knowledge of of how to move and, and organize the body in space. Then we can get a little bit more advanced with things like max force isometrics and things like that. They're a little bit maybe different than what you've seen in the past. But I just don't think the majority of, of players in the NBA have kind of like maxed out the classical avenue in a lot of senses. In terms of vertical jump training or however you want to phrase it, what is what is what do you like to see? I mean, every player is different, so this is I'm sure this is a hard question to answer. But in terms of balance with plyometric strength and flexibility, how do you like to see those balanced? I mean, look, I I don't want any of our guys to be complete yogis. You know what I mean? Like, there's an element of like, wow, we see it, we see it in our database of like 
there's a little bit of tightness. You need to be really, really bound, kind of like springy, right? Like you, wow. you can't, I don't see the guys that are really, really elite on the mobility screen also being really, really springy. And oftentimes the, the guys that do have pretty good mobility, they might be able to reach a decent jump height, but it takes them a long time to do it, which in a lot of cases is not super useful unless your timing is really, really good. Right. So we want that balance of like stiff enough to have some really kind of elastic qualities, but also loose enough that you're not going to get some of the overuse issues that are going to come with being overly tight. Right. That like if my quads are super, super tight and they're only getting tighter as I age, you're going to get those kind of patella tendinopathy being a recurrent issue. So I like a balance of sure. I want you to have some ability to move your body but I don't need you to be the most mobile person somewhere in that middle ground is kind of where I think is the best for athleticism as a whole. And I, th I find that most times, even if guys are really restricted, uh, if you're knowledgeable, what the movements you're having them do and putting them in good position to do it, then they're able to do it. I've seen a lot of guys that are really restricted on a mobility screen and I put a heel lift under their heels on a squat and they're able to squat perfectly fine. Right. It's like, there are just certain ways to kind of, get more out of an individual's anthropometric makeup that maybe doesn't always happen for people until they kind of meet a better practitioner. Like in high school, coaches aren't equipped to know how to put them in a better position, if that makes sense. It does. If a player does have more mobility, is that give them less of a chance for injury, more of a chance, or is it the same if he has, you know, how, how do you, where do you land on that? I mean, I don't think, I don't think every form of mobility is created the same. Okay. Right. So, you know, ha yeah. having, having tight hamstrings is a lot different than having tight ankles. Right. That like, it's one of those yeah. things where like, I don't think that in a sport like basketball, hamstring tightness is going to hold you back to a huge degree if it's unless it's really severe, but on the flip side of the coin, if you have absolutely no ankle ability, it's extremely difficult to just accelerate moving forward. Right. You, you don't have the ability to dorsiflex that ankle. You don't have ability to, to land in a pretty, kind of tension and preloaded position when you jump. So there's different things. If someone has okay ankle mobility and really not great hamstring ability, I think they're still going to be a good athlete, but if they're really restricted in the ankle and nowhere else, that's going to be a problem for them creating power because that first interaction with the ground is always going to be limited in some sense. I always started with dynamic stretching before I played static after I feel better when I stretch after I play, how much of that do you believe is placebo? I mean, for starters, I believe in placebos. You know what uh, I mean? Like oh, I mean, there's scientific data. I mean, it's, yeah, it's yeah, not really like an it, it's, it's not really an opinion. You know, it's a fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It, but it, I, I mean, I think that I think that's the right process, right? There's definitely research to show that static stretching before training is going to diminish power to some description, and possibly if you're getting to highest forces. A lot of that research is around track and field. So maybe it's not the mm. same, but it's like stretching your hamstrings before doing a maximal sprint, which, which is for them 60 meters and above that puts you a little higher risk for hamstring injury. But ultimately I think it's the right answer because multi, the, the job of your warmup is just get you warm. Right. I don't necessarily care how our athletes get there wow, in terms yeah. of like, it's just, as long as the, the core temperature has been elevated, our risk for injury goes down and our muscle pliability goes up to some, to some degree. And then when you're in that warmer kind of warmed up state, whether it's after a game or whatever it may be, you're going to get more out of your static mobility session because your muscles are already looser and you're able to take them into greater ranges. So you're going to get more benefit out of that static stretching that might've been kind of a waste of time before when you were cold, that maybe is going to be a little more useful once you're warm. So I'm not against that in any, any sense of the, in sense of the word. And honestly, like, I think that like stretching is like the thing that like, 
youth basketball is missing like the most. It's oh, just wow. like, okay. I see, I see, I mean, obviously strength training is part of it, but like, you know, I go to USA basketball and work with, I worked with the U 17 team and U 19 team where, I mean, I think our whole U 17 teams in the league now, but um, <laughs> the guys had horrendously tight hips, right? Horrendously tight for kids that are 16 and 17 years old. And it's like, and that's not necessarily just nature, right? That's nurture. That's going to EYBL, USA Basketball, Peach Jam, all these different things. Well, what are, what are the risks of having extremely tight hips? Well, once you have tight hips and let's say, let's say you have really tight anterior hips, that's going to be what you call like an exacerbating risk factor for something like patella tendinopathy. And patella tendinopathy is the jumper's knee, right? Like it's, it's yeah. you, hear, yeah. you see it a lot, you hear it a lot in basketball. And the problem with that is, is that like people, there's like no education around like these overuse injuries and the real ways to fix them and the real causes to them. Right. So like everyone you'll see, you go to any youth tournament that's like worth its salt. You're going to see 10,000 ice bags being handed out at the end of the day that guys are wrapping around their knees. And this does absolutely nothing to fix this issue. Right. Nothing whatsoever. Right. So like a great example is like I went to USA basketball U17 camp and I, and I, this was my first time at a USA camp and I, I've been around grassroots basketball and stuff, but not, not to the same degree. And I'm sitting there watching all of our athletic trainers just make ice bag after ice bag after ice bag, like <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of ice bags. And I'm like, what are we doing? Like, why, like, <laughs> are we, are we questioning why we're giving, like, do you have a bruise? Like why is no, my knees are just sore. And like, I'm just going to ice them. And so I, at the end of the day, one of these maybe five days in the camp, you know, I, I would talk to the team at the end, do static stretching. And I was just kind of like where I would try to educate guys on how to take care of their body. And I was like, okay, I want you to raise your hand. If you've ever had knee playing pain, playing basketball, 90% of the camp raises their hand. Right. And the other, t- the other 10% are probably just bullshitting. Right. Like they're, they're, they're probably not, they probably have had knee pain at some point. And then, okay. So if you've had knee pain, how many raise your hand again, if you ice your knees every time you have knee pain. Right. And, 80% of those 90 raise their hand. And then I'm asking, so how many of you have gotten rid of your knee pain since icing and no one raises their hand. Right. And they're like, it was a great reaction. I forget who it was. And this one kid just goes, so I'm an idiot. It's like, no, yeah, it's like, no one's telling you how to like, no one's telling you how to handle this, but ultimately, right. That that's like, you see things like that that are culturally ingrained of like, let's just ice the knees. And that's not how you fix it. Right. You have these risk factors like workload, mobility, and tendon quality, right? These are three things that play into patella tendinopathy and no one's educating them on like, okay, if I have super tight anterior hips, that's going to increase the amount of pull that's happening on my patella tendon, right? If I then have a huge amount of chronic workload, right? If I'm doing or acute spikes in workload, I go from playing a little bit of basketball to a 10 day camp at USA basketball. It's a huge spike in workload. Tendons and ligaments don't love that, right? That's when they start to get inflamed and sore, right? And then we also don't understand kids at that age have no idea or a lot of their trainers really have no idea of like how to accurately load the tendon to create adaptation and reduce pain or to improve the quality of the tendon. So we have things that just, if people just accept it as the norm to have patella tendinopathy for however many years and they just ice it, ice it, ice it and ignore it because it goes away when you're warm and loose and you don't feel it when you're, you know, your knees might be achy when you go to the movies or whatever, but when you get loose and like poor, you feel good. The problem is, is that it's not an issue until you have it for five, six, seven, eight, nine years, tendon starts to calcify, permanent changes start to happen to your tendon. And then that's like an issue that comes up on an MRI for a team later in in the game. Like I've seen this happen before where 
guys ignore their patellar tendinopathy and then suddenly they've got calcification coming up on their on their ultrasounds and stuff so it's like one of those things it's like you don't need to panic don't you, but you can't ignore it and you're also doing the wrong things to address it you think you're addressing it but you're not addressing it at all so i see a lot of stuff like that that is it's a long-winded way of saying that anterior hip mobility is something that's important but it's 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 a part of the equation for something that we see constantly in the sport so it helps with injury prevention or overuse injury prevention, but does it also help uh, with athletic performance if you could like loosen up those hips? I would say moving side to side. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So it's like, I think that I don't, I've seen a lot of guys that are really restricted to the hips be really good vertically guys that are really restricted to the hips will struggle to move side to side. And that's a piece of it, right? So like a lot of times your inability to extend your hips and abduct your hips, get you know, push off that that's something where if you're, you see those limitations really start to strike people. Mm, yeah. That's important in the modern NBA because we need all the players to be able to slide and raise. So super important sure. um, to shift topics slightly. What are your thoughts on micro dosing exercise and what are its benefits? I mean, I'm, I'm a, we don't do much of it because we don't need to, right? Because we're, we're generally most of our guys in the off season. Right. But I like the concept. I think the concept makes perfect sense, right? That like, I think that there's, I, I think the approach of like not doing a workout because it takes 45 minutes to an hour is terrible, right? That anything is better than nothing. And moving the needle, even an in, uh, increment, if you do that enough consistently, it's going to have some sort of benefit. So I, I'm a big fan of the concept. It's like, I just worry that sometimes with the micro dosing that it gets like dwindled so much that there's like almost nothing being done. You know what I mean? Like right. there's, there's, there's gotta be a balance where like, yes, we have like, if the, if the micro dosing means we're going to do like a heavy trap bar deadlift for two sets or whatever, I'm all for it. But if it means we're going to do some sort of like random little balance drill here and there like okay then i'm not for it you know what i mean it depends on how it's being but the concept i'm a fan of it and i think that consistent application of stimulus is what creates adaptation so the concept of like continually doing that more often as opposed to only taking these windows when we have them i think is really beneficial right so i mean i think it makes sense for like situations like this we obviously know athletes schedules are super hectic and let's say they're in the off season. Their agent thinks they should play in this pro-am game. It'd be good for their brand or whatever. They had a plan to have an hour and a half workout. That doesn't mean, and they want to have fresh legs for the game. It doesn't mean they can't work out at all. Maybe just get like a 15 minute workout in. And right. You know, it, it, I think it's good for like better flow and just like getting in and out of situations that might pop up on you. Yeah. I mean, and the more often you, you have those things pop up, the harder it is to, to implement strength training because you've gotten out of the habit and you're sore or whatever, and you're going to feel those tired legs even more because you didn't consistently do it. I think for us too, you know, like, you know, if I'm dealing with guys, it's like, you know, there are certain things that like, okay, if you're going to go travel and you've got knee pain or whatever, then you, I don't care what you do at all workout wise, but you have to do these three exercises at least three times a week. And it's like, that way, at least when you get back on the court, you're going to be in a better position. So like, I, you know, I think that there's, there's important factors that you kind of need to, to do. I mean, when I was with USA basketball, like we did a little bit of like tendon loading protocol before and after practice, it was a weird thing for guys to do because they'd never done it. But it's one of those things where it's like, okay, like I'm not like other way, if I'm not doing this, then I'm not educating them on how to do this on their own and understand that exactly what you're talking about is like, even if you have 15 minutes, like do your isometrics, do your lower leg work, do your core work, do something that's moving the needle and not just say, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. And then like you try, and then the problem is they do one incredible two hour workout 
and then you don't work out again for another nine days and like there's no adaptation that's created there most definitely most definitely a few more before we get out of here a couple more i shall say even more than gracious with, with your time i really appreciate you um zion williamson now yeah i don't know if he's been to the p3 facility but i'd like to add oh three times great perfect okay well okay once at an adidas event and twice here okay how does somebody at that size generate that much force when it comes to jumping off two legs when it comes to jumping off either leg like how can you explain that i don't have a good one for you on that one (laughs) i mean there's like a great great example is right like so in our database of 700 nba players at this point we've got two guys that create the most force number one is andre drummond wow number two is zion williamson now one is 75 pounds heavier than the other right the fact that zion is creating close to as much force as andre with 75 pounds less weight on him is pretty crazy Right. So <clears throat> I wish we had a better quantification. We don't do our approach for it, our max for on the plates. So we don't get to see how much they're putting through one leg in the vertical. But yeah, he's an incredible for he's he's the outlier, right? Like it's one of those things. It's like, you know, there's there's sometimes you tell kids when we're working like, you know, they want to like look at the outliers. I want to train like I'm like, you need to train like the norm. Don't try to train like the outlier. Those people don't exist. They're not common. Train like the people that have made it the, the, the straight line path. But yeah, he's he is a freak when it comes to force production. It's it's pretty insane to see, and, he, and he's not he's not as big as he seems. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's but but the height wise, but the width of him is crazy, right? Like he's just like built so differently than some of the other basketball guys that we see. From an injury prevention standpoint, what do you think Zion could do differently going forward? I mean, it's you know it's tough to 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 guess what's going on in the black box with the NBA team does, right? Like it's, they, you, what he does behind closed doors training wise is hard to know if it's good or bad, but I think that for, I think if you're looking at a lot of guys that have really explosive abilities like him, then you really want to make sure that your ground contacts are maximized, right? That like, that's how your foot interacts with the ground that sets every joint up the chain up for success or failure. And if your ground contacts are poor, when you're landing from incredible heights with a lot of weight on your body, then if your ankles are letting you down, then your knees are letting you down, your hips are letting you down, your back is letting you down, right? So I think that in a general, we see a lot of guys in the NBA that have ground contacts as a need, but I think that those things become exacerbated the more explosive you are, right? That there's just that much more force going through your foot and there's that much more danger for that force to hurt your knee, right? So like, I think that focusing, and it seems like from what I've heard, you know, about what they, what he's been doing in terms of rehab and stuff is it's a lot of it is foot and lower leg oriented. So it seems like they're probably going down the right rabbit hole of like, we need to fix how his foot interacts with the ground to protect his knee long-term. The classical research was always like, you know, work around the hip. The hip is what protects the knee. And that's just part of the equation, right? That the knee is just an expression of what happens at the ankle and what happens at the hip. But a lot of times it's no matter what happens at the, the, hip that if the foot is in a bad position that not then there's nothing you can do about it so yeah. i would say that the lower leg is really the, the, the avenue to go down for a guy like that i remember there was a report that came out years ago that they were trying to change his gait but for zion or anybody else how hard is that to do to actually change the way someone walks or runs it's uh 
it's a it's an interesting question right so like i think that in something like a track and field sport you could absolutely overhaul because you run in a straight line yeah your, your task is the same every single time and how you complete that task can definitely be coached and trained but the the nature of the nba is so reactive in so many different scenarios that yeah sure you might be able to improve how he runs up and down the court on like a a lob or something you know what i mean but like beyond that like that, that's a really really difficult pattern to change and there's an you know you have to think about the amount of repetitions you do on the daily versus how much right. you do in the gym right that like right. if your gait is something that you need to change you walk around taking thousands of steps a day and then you do your hour-long workout with let's say max 50 reps of whatever you're doing it's not going to move the needle against 1000 right so like it, it's an interesting thing i think it's i think it's worth being cognizant of what your daily patterns do to your body you know what i mean that like maybe if you're in poor footwear that's putting you that's kind of like degrading the competition composition of your foot over time and that's something to be aware of but to like walk around and make sure that you're walking a specific way the whole time is like i don't think <laughs> right. anyone really wants to live their life like that you know what i mean that like and i don't know that it's realistic to think that people are going to walk around every day and be like okay walk like this walk like this walk like this walk it's just like no one's going to do that so I think that there is definitely changes that can be made in certain linear patterns and you can improve change of direction mechanics, but how much you overhaul someone's like natural gait, I don't think there's a huge amount of movement that's going to happen there. Best ways for aging athletes to slow down their athletic decline. Slow down their athletic decline. I you know it's, I, I fully believe in like, find a repertoire of things that works for you right of mm -hmm. like don't don't be a superhero in the gym right don't, when you're feeling good you don't need to do the 38 inch approach box jump right just like you need like you need to find your six things of like okay my body feels good when i do my squats my body feels good when i do my glue bridges right and when i do my jump rope when i do my hop series or whatever and roll with those things like they don't they never get out of your program and they're never you're never going for like two and a half hours. Maybe it's an hour, maybe it's 45 minutes, but like there's consistently put into the, it's always there and you always do it. And those physical qualities won't, won't, they may diminish a little bit. You might be the max vert might go down a little bit, but like you'll, that bait, that bar will be set higher than it would be if you, if you stop doing those kind of six things. So like, I always tell people, like, if you feel good depth lifting, then do deadlifts. like find one good strength exercise, one good plyo, make sure you move in a few different directions so that you don't just become locked in one and just roll with that and kind of like accept the monotony of it of like there's an element of like training that i think people always want to find the flashy and new but really like my job is to actually like make you okay with the monotony right the like that to know that like just doing this repetitively is going to have a benefit and trusting in that benefit and feeling in that benefit and whether or not the workout you love it because it's boring or you've done it that there's a benefit to it and you have to know that and deal with that so like it's find your staples and just roll with them Right. And then stretch and mobilize because like it's when you don't use it, you lose it. And so when you're I, I feel it acutely as a 34 year old that <laughs> and I, yeah, and I feel like you don't even have to like, you don't have to stretch for hours. Like I think like 10 no. to 15 minutes a day could do wonders for you, you know, I mean, five minutes. It's yeah. like one of those things. There you go. Like, there you go. It's like if you have like one exercise that you know that you need to do on daily. And we tell all of our athletes that but, like when we have guys that come in, especially for short periods of time that like mobility is a need that they're really restricted. We're like, this is not just going to be on me. It's going to be on you. Like we, right. we see this, we see this needle move very consistently. So long as you're doing your part, if we we're going to do our mobilizations in the gym, 
but you're going to do it on your own once a day for 15 minutes. And if you do that, I promise you in six, seven, eight weeks, you're going to see a different change in your ability to move. So it's, it's just consistent. It's not 45 minutes in front of the TV. It's, it's five minutes. Just take five minutes to your two mobilities and just start accruing that time. Right. Most definitely. John, great stuff. You know what I noticed about P3 a little bit? You guys, yeah, don't, you guys do amazing work and you don't put out like that much content, right? It's not like you guys don't pump out content like that. No. Is, I mean, is, there, is there a reason for that or you're just focused on the work? A little bit of both. It's a yeah. little bit of both. It's like, we're not a huge company and we don't have one individual that's like solely assigned to social media. Right. Right. So like part of it is like, you know, if I come up with a good social media idea, it's, it's got to work around the seven hours of coaching I got to do and like the right. other things I got to make happen. Right. And it's also like, for me as a coach, there's a lot of times things that I would love to like film and do, but I'm not going to do that at the expense of making sure that I'm coaching the athlete. Right. So like, it's 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 about the work first and the show second for me in a lot of ways and so and also like we we won't post for posting sake you know what i mean like right, sometimes right. like people are meeting their quota of how often they're feeding the algorithm right and right, for, right. Us, for us it's like we're not gonna put stuff out unless we think it's valuable or interesting or something that maybe people aren't or aren't saying or people aren't articulating well we want to make sure that it's kind of more interesting and relevant content and a lot more science driven content than just this guy jumped high today because like realistically we see that all the time right like right. that's that's kind of like the day-to-day -day for us we see lots of guys touching the rafters it's that's not we could post that every few weeks right so it's like i think we want to make sure that our content that we put out there is relevant and bringing some level of education to the industry and not just posting for posting sake. You guys are hiding the good stuff. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, all, we're also, we're also actively really working on trying to get a lot of our stuff published in like peer reviewed research. Right. So okay. and that, that, ta that takes a lot of like rigor and time and sending, sending a, a draft to a board, getting it reviewed, doing that. So a lot of our time and effort really spends on like the industry seeing what we do as opposed to like, you know, the, the, whoever our hundred thousand, 105,000 followers are, right. We kind of like, we put a lot of our interest in it. And then, you know, ultimately once we, when that stuff is published, then it's like, we can say publicly, it's like, Hey, this has been, this is not only do we believe this, this is met, this has met the scientific standard for like, this is actually a real thing. So, and I think that's kind of like always been the MO of our company is that we're science driven. So it's like a lot of times we see stuff that guys are any which way, this fancy balance exercise, throw this, do this. It looks cool on camera, but like, and a lot of the stuff I have our athletes do just isn't that cool on camera. I have to sell the monotony, right? Like when someone's lifting a big weight and we're going to put it up there, well, I think it's cool, but. Well, sometimes, sometimes traders will do all the real work and then like set up like this one funky workout, right? Where it's like, it's for social, yeah. even though they were, they were actually doing the real work, but that's not yeah. what they're going to show on social because it's, sure. it's not going to go. <laughs> but John, great stuff. You're always welcome back on the show. Speaking of social media, where can we find you or anywhere else? John Flake on Instagram. And I think it's John Flake on Twitter too. Honestly, I'm so bad at Twitter that like and, I- <laughs> And P3, where can we uh, find P3? Uh, P3 Sports Science on Instagram. And then I think it's exactly the same on Twitter as well. John, thank you so much for taking the time. You're always welcome back on the show and talk soon. Yeah, have a good one, man. There it is, man. What a great conversation with John. Big shouts to John Flake for joining in on this episode. Combo Nation, punch down on that subscribe button if you haven't already. Rate 
and review the show wherever you listen to Combos Court. And if you would like to support this podcast even further, check out the Combos Court Patreon page. I'll leave a link in the description for that. Share this episode. Share with a friend. Share it on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Take a screenshot of this episode and post it on your IG stories. You could tag me on there at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E-T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O. Be on the lookout for episode three. 191 combo out.